Ladies and gentlemen, let me apologize to you and particularly to Professor Jaffa uh, for the cross-up that results in uh, Professor Jaffa being uh, late. That was not his fault. That was uh, our fault. And I apologize to him, Harry, uh, and to all of you. Uh, while uh, Professor Jaffa comes down, let me mention that we have uh, some interesting events in the Madison program coming up, uh, open to the public. We hope all of you uh, will attend. On Wednesday, the 8th of October, in this room at 430 Professor Rufus Spears will be coming to speak on uh, democracy and the superpower. Then on uh, October 10th and 11th in Makash 10, we're sponsoring a public conference on faith and the challenges of secularism. Uh, we've noted just from what's come in over the uh, email and other sources that an awful lot of people are going to be coming from outside the university as well as inside the university to attend that conference it will be all day uh, on the Friday and Saturday. You can look uh, at the schedule for the particulars on the James Madison program website. But with so many people coming, although Makash 10 is a very big room, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to come early. Uh, my understanding is that there will be some overflow uh, in case we need it, and there will be a video simulcast uh, for the overflow room. But you will want to be in the room with the lecturers, I'm sure, Makash 10. So if you're interested in that very timely and important subject, I would uh, encourage you to come early. And then we have a number of uh, other things coming up uh, after that. They're all available for uh, your review on the James Madison Program website. And now I have the very great uh, privilege and indeed the honor of welcoming uh, uh, for the inaugural lecture in this year's America's Founding and Future series, uh, Professor Harry Jaffa. You say a word about the series. It began only 12 months ago, but it already boasts an impressive array of speakers. Last year, we were fortunate enough to present William Crystal, editor of the Weekly Standard, Jim Tuohy, director of the White House Office on Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, and Krista Muth of the American Enterprise Institute. In keeping with the mission of the series, these speakers addressed foundational and fundamental principles of American republicanism and their relevance to contemporary affairs. Tonight, we welcome to Princeton, one of our nation's most distinguished scholars of moral and political theory. Harry Jaffa is Distinguished Fellow of the Claremont Institute and Professor Emeritus of Government at Claremont McKenna College and the Claremont Graduate School. His widely acclaimed study, The Lincoln-Douglas Debates, The Crisis of the House Divided, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1959 originally, has shaped the thinking of many Americans, certainly myself included, about the struggle over slavery and the circumstances leading to Southern secession and civil war. Professor Jaffa recently produced, uh, produced the much-awaited sequel, A New Birth of Freedom. If you haven't uh, yet gotten to that one, you are in for a treat. Professor Jaffa's other writings include The Conditions of Freedom in 1975, Thomism and Aristotelianism, 1979, How to Think About the American Revolution, 1982, and Original Intent and the Framers of the Constitution, a Disputed Question, 1994. As many of you know, uh, Professor Jaffa is himself the student uh, of the great political theorist Leo Strauss. It's truly an honor, Harry, on behalf of the Madison Program in Princeton University to welcome you today, and I ask uh, all of you to join me in extending a warm welcome to Professor Harry. Reminded about the, the man who was uh, being tarred and feathered and ridden on a rail, 
who said, if it wasn't for the honor of the thing, I'd rather walk. But the, uh, now, can I be heard in the back row? Okay. Uh, the title I've given to this lecture is Thomas Aquinas Meets Thomas Jefferson. The conventional, the more or less received view of the, of the relationship of Aquinas' thought to Jefferson is that the former represents the gloomy ages of monkish superstition and the latter the skeptical and scientific age of enlightenment. In due time, it is said, the progress of history replaced the former with the latter. Of course, the same progress has in our time replaced the age of enlightenment with the age of nihilism, also otherwise known as postmodernism. A meeting of the two Thomases today, assuming such a thing were possible, would then be a meeting of two minds, each locked within the confines of its own age, unable to understand each other, and both made obsolete by progress, with a capital P. Thomas, as a quasi-official philosopher of the Church, may still be of interest to some pious Roman Catholics and to some marginal non-Catholics who have not yet discovered that they are, also, they are also prisoners within their own time and place. Leo Strauss, in blissful defiance of whatever of what everyone else knew or thought they knew, used to say that Socrates had more in common with any intelligent American than with any stupid Athenian. For Strauss, the difference between intelligence and stupidity was more important than any difference between an ancient Athenian and a modern American. According to Strauss, there was something called the human condition, which was common to all human beings, apart from their time and place. What was common to all human beings made possible a common understanding, which, however difficult to achieve, was nonetheless in principle accessible to all human beings. That principle was once called philosophy. And I have a note that said this was before a, before a doctorate in philosophy might be in any subject other than philosophy. <coughs> the understanding of what was important to all human beings as human beings was once regarded as a measure of one's distance from barbarism. Notwithstanding their great difference, notwithstanding their great differences within this common understanding, the great books of the Western tradition constituted the basis of what we call Western civilization. Today, something called cultural relativism, a feature of what is called political correctness, holds that what is unique to particular times and places has within itself a greater truth than what is common. At the same time, they deny the possibility of intelligent communication between different times and places. Strangely, the proposition that all vital human communication is sealed within its own time and place is a generalization about all times and places which exempts itself from its own edict. The essence of postmodernism was captured in the ancient world by the Cretan who declared that all Cretans were liars. Deconstructionism is the literary wing of postmodernism fashionable in our, on our campuses today. It abandons any quest for objective meaning 
in literature, but studies instead the subjective reaction of the reader. Among historians, documents are studied for what they mean to well, for what they mean to us, not what intrinsic meaning they might have, or what meaning they once had to those whose lives were directly affected by them. Ken Burns, at the end of his long Civil War documentary, observed that the promise of equality in the Gettysburg Address had not been fulfilled since there was still discrimination against sodomites. Only he didn't say sodomites. It is, it is difficult to imagine anything in 1863 further from the mind of Abraham Lincoln or, or the defenders of the Union than the association of the cause of freedom with that of sodomy. Lincoln did, however, say that Jefferson, in the Declaration of Independence, had embodied an abstract truth applicable to all men at all times. The idea of such a truth, transhistorical and transcultural, would have been as familiar to Thomas would have been as familiar to Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, as to, it would have been as familiar to Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln as it would have been strange to Ken Burns and to most present-day academic historians. <clears throat> the most famous sentence in the political literature of the world, embodying the abstract truth that commended itself to Lincoln, and the one most pregnant with consequences for all mankind, is as follows. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Lincoln at Gettysburg said that the nation at its birth had been dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We see, however, that in its original form, that proposition was the first in a series of propositions, all of which are regarded as self-evident. The evidence for the latter is, however, contained within the former. That is to say, the sense in which all men are said to be equal impl implies a priori the rights which they are said unalienable to, unalienably to possess. There is only one respect, however, in which all men, meaning all human beings, are said to be equal, or held to be equal. That is what John Locke calls dominion. By nature, no man is the ruler of another. There is no natural difference between one human being and another, such as there is between the queen bee and the workers or drones. Nor is there any such difference between one human being and another as there is between any man and any dog or horse or chimpanzee, by reason of which the one is the ruler and the other is the ruled. Jonathan Swift, to the contrary notwithstanding, men ride horses by self-evident natural right. The enslavement of the horse by his rider is not against nature and is therefore not unjust. But the enslavement of one human being by another violates that same order of nature which justifies the rider of the horse. There is, there is here no intention to say that human beings are equal among themselves with respect to intelligence, strength, size, beauty, or virtue. Nor are, they, nor are they thought to be equal in any of those qualities 
which are generally regarded as desirable in those who fill the offices of government. George Washington was the first president of the United States. It is doubtful that there was then any another human being in the world with the experience, the wisdom, the self-control, the justice, and the confidence of his countrymen who could fill that office and launch the new constitution upon its path of glory. But Washington did not choose himself, nor did his virtues of themselves entitle him to office. He was indeed chosen because of his virtues, but he was chosen in a constitutional process decided upon by the American people embodying the consent of the governed. Let us follow the logical process whereby the proposition that all men are created equal might result in the superior virtues of George Washington being placed at the service of the American people. It was an oft-repeated saying of James Madison that compact is the essence of free government. What Madison meant is neither more nor less than what is meant by all men are created equal. That human beings are by nature equal in dominion means that human beings are not by nature under government. While human beings remain equal in dominion, none having authority over another, they are in what is called the state of nature. The transition by which human beings become citizens or subjects of government is accomplished by something called the social contract or compact. This is an agreement of each with all and of all with each that they form a government whose object shall be the better security of the equal and unalienable rights with which each has been endowed by his creator. For someone to be a party to such a contract, he must first of all recognize that each one of his partners to the contract possesses the same unalienable rights and that each therefore has the same claim to the security of these rights. No one can a priori lay claim to greater protection of his rights than can be afforded anyone else. Not George Washington or anyone with George Washington's virtues can lay claim to such protection, nor can anyone claim any exemption from an equal share of the burdens which must be borne if the government is to be able to furnish the protection for which it is founded. No one can claim as a right exemption from taxation or military service. The most urgent reason for the formation of the political community is protection from all violence, both foreign and domestic. Prior to government, in the state of nature, each individual had to furnish his own protection. In, in such a state, he would remain extremely vulnerable. Now his fellow citizens will join together to help protect him, but it would be irrational to demand protection for himself and be unwilling to join in protecting others. No one can claim advantages not equally shared with others or exemptions from the burdens equally shared by others. Anyone who tries to exempt himself from the common burdens, which are the price to be paid for the common benefits, cannot be accepted as a fellow citizen. He will remain in a state of nature. What, you may ask, about the Quakers, who, were the, who set the pattern of conscientious objection, exemption from military service that has remained part of the American political tradition. 
that exemption has not been a right, but rather a privilege granted out of consideration for those whose mode of worshiping God requires that they abstain from violence, even in self-defense. It is an act of prudent generosity towards otherwise good citizens, a privilege that can be granted only to a few, for otherwise the political community would be disabled from performing its most urgent reason for existence. <clears throat> the formation of, of the community by the social contract is by unanimous consent. Must be understood, this must be unanimous. This consent is based upon the mutual recognition of the common humanity of the contracting members. In the ancient city, the city of Plato and Aristotle and Moses and of Fustel de Coulange, human beings commonly recognized each other as members of the same family or clan or tribe or city or nation. To ask them to recognize each other first and foremost as members of the human race is to reverse the order of priority of what had hitherto been the ordinary experience of mankind. Hitherto, that experience had been linked to the self-understanding of the ancient city as the creation of the gods or God of that city. The Old Testament is in this respect in the self-understanding of Moses, of, of the Mosaic polity as the creation of the God of Israel, as the, the, the self-understanding of the Mosaic polity as the creation of its God is typical of all ancient cities. Uh, the beginning of Plato's laws in which the Athenian stranger asked the Cretan and the Spartan, who gave the laws of your city? Was it a, a God or a man? And both of them answered, God, God. The God of Israel gives Israel its laws, but does not give laws to Athens or Rome or Sparta. In the post-classical world of the Christian West, however, the God of Israel has become the God of all mankind. In so becoming, he ceases to be the lawgiver that was the God of Moses. Municipal law, the law of particular regimes, is no longer the law of a particular God since the particular gods are all dead. The task of, co of connecting the universal God with a particular regime would have to await the realization that mankind had been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. From the perspective of the American founding, the governments of the West had, from the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, in the words of the Federalists, they had depended upon their political constitutions an accident and force, rather than reflection and choice. Lincoln grouped all of the former together as based upon the divine right of kings, which he considered in principle the same as slavery. Slavery represented the quintessence of force without right, but any form of government <laughs> without a foundation in the consent of the governed was a form of slavery. The precise point in the law human story at which accident and force was replaced by reflection and choice was the point at which human equality determined the form of the unanimous consent by which the state of nature was transformed into civil society. Maybe I'd better read that sentence again. <laughs> the precise point in the long human story at which accident and force 
was replaced by reflection and choice, was the point at which human equality, that all men are created equal, determined the form of the consent by which the state of nature was transformed into civil society. For more than a millennium and a half, the Christian West had been afflicted by the hiatus between the authority of God and the authority of law. By unanimous consent, the authority of God became once more the authority of, for law. It's important to understand that the principles of the social contract stemming from the principles of the Declaration of Independence are a means by which not only the authority of, of the people is authority for law, but the authority of God becomes the authority for law. For this authority now emanated from the people, not from autocratic kings or aristocracies of wealth or birth. This was by reason of the fact that each, in, each human individual participating in the creation of a free civil society had been equally endowed by his creator with the rights which entitled him to enter into the social contract. It was understood, moreover, that the exercise of these rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was confined to the purposes for the sake of which they had been endowed by their creator. When the signers of the Declaration appealed to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of their intentions, they acknowledged the divine government of the world as the framework within which their rights might be exercised. The Declaration was, moreover, issued in the name of the good people of these colonies. In a letter to Spencer Rohn many years later, Jefferson said that the ultimate repository of the principles of the Constitution was, quote, the people en masse. They, he said, are independent of everything, quote, but moral law. The people, however, does not make the moral law. The moral law makes the people. Without the moral law, a human assemblage even one formed by consent may be nothing more than a gang of robbers. Consent is then more than an act of will. It is an act of will informed by understanding of the moral law, which is also, the, which is also God's will. We see here how closely Jefferson is attuned to the natural law doctrine of Thomas Aquinas. The, the, the community formed by unanimous consent will act by the will of the majority. The will of the majority is, however, restrained a priori by the limits intrinsic to unanimous consent. According to James Madison in his great essay on sovereignty, the majority may do anything that can be done rightfully by unanimous consent. But free governments cannot govern by unanimous consent. Majority rule is a substitute for unanimity, authorized by the social contract. The purpose of majority rule is to find the means. Is, is to find, the purpose of majority rule is to find the means to serve the ends of government already embodied in the unanimous consent. The ends served by majority rule are not themselves decided by majority rule. And let me repeat that because this is something I want you to remember when you go out of here. The ends served by majority rule are not themselves decided by majority rule. It is amazing how little this most basic of the elements of political right is understood today, even in the highest places. Mr. Justice Scalia, in his famous Rome interview, declared, quote, the whole theory of democracy 
is that the majority rules. That is the whole theory of it. You protect minorities only because the majority determines that there are certain minority positions that deserve protection. And again, you either agree with democratic theory or you do not. But you cannot have democratic theory and then say, what about the minority? The minority loses, except to the extent that the majority in its document of government has agreed to accord the minority rights, thinking of the American Constitution. But what about the Russian Constitution and the German Constitution? Justice Scalia, like all legal positivists, denies to the Declaration of Independence any constitutional status whatever. But one would think that the most elementary reasoning, the natural law in its pristine form, would instruct them that there can be no legitimacy to majority rule without minority rights. What rightful authority can be attributed to an election in which there is no freedom of speech or, the, or of the press? or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble. The plebiscite has been a favorite instrument of tyrants since Napoleon. In the last election conducted by Saddam Hussein, he received 99% of the vote, doing better even than Hitler or Stalin. One of the main concerns of the authors of the Federalists was to prevent the tyranny of the majority. The idea that the majority accords rights to the minority, that was Justice Scalia's words, is the ultimate absurdity. The purpose of majority rule is to secure the rights possessed equally by every citizen. Strictly speaking, there are no minority rights. There are only individual rights. The Bill of Rights of the Constitution is not an act of condescension by the majority. It is a recognition of rights which we have been, of the rights with which we have been endowed by our Creator. Only because majority and minority have the same rights and therefore a common interest is majority rule a legitimate means of government. Let me read that sentence again. Only because majority and minority have the same rights and therefore a common interest is majority rule a legitimate means of governing. We said earlier that George Washington had been elected first president because of his great virtues. Once a political community has been formed, the, the people rightly seek those rightly seek those they think best qualified to find the means to secure their rights. Democracy understood from the principles of the Declaration of Independence is not only consistent with aristocracy, it is aristocracy. Consider the following passage from one of Jefferson's letters to, Jan to John Adams. Quote, For I agree with you that there is a natural, arist a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talents. The natural aristocracy I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trust, and the government of society. And indeed, it would have been inconsistent in creation. The women are created equal. It would have been inconsistent in creation to have formed man for the social state and not to have provided virtue and wisdom enough to manage the concerns of the society. May we not even say that that form of government is the best, which provides the most effectually for a pure selection of these natural aristoi into the offices of government. That last part of that sentence, that, that that form of government is best, which provides the most effectually for a pure selection of, those, of these natural aristoi into the offices of government, 
That was that quote was used by Leo Strauss in his essay on classical political philosophy to give the most succinct uh, definition of the meaning of the best regime. And I think it's quite astonishing, particularly in all the debates that were going on about the relationship of ancients and modern, with some Straussians saying that there's a gulf between the two that can't be transcended, uh, that, uh, that Strauss t turned to Jefferson to explain what Plato meant. Uh, that's particularly remarkable because of the fact that, that incidentally, Jefferson hated Plato. And, and, and I think never understood the word of the Republic. But that, that really gives the, the meaning of the idea of the best regime. <clears throat> the theme of, of nature's fitting man for the social state and providing virtue and talents for government could hardly be more Aristotelian had it been written by Thomas Aquinas. We might call the American founding as a whole, taking into account both the Declaration and the Constitution, as prudently classical, recalling Aristotle's dictum, the natural right, of natural right, all is changeable. The equal rights of the Creator were necessary to replace the law-giving gods of the ancient city. This replacement required a democratization of the ancient idea of aristocracy. But the change in form was less a change in substance than, than, it, might, than it might at first appear, seem to be. Consider the following from Washington's inaugural address as president. The foundations of our national policy will be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality. Since there is no truth more thoroughly established than, the, than that there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness. Since we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Well, George Washington in his inaugural address. What Washington says about the indissoluble union between virtue and happiness is as succinct a precy of the Nicomachean ethics as can be imagined. Clearly, the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of virtue, the pure and immutable principles of private morality, are one and the same. There is no patronage here of the notion popular today that the pursuit of happiness means doing your own thing, no matter what that thing is. Finally, we see Washington asserting that the boundaries of national policy, the actions of citizens and statesmen, whether private or public, must conform, must conform to the eternal rules of order and right. Wherein does this differ from Thomas Aquinas' conception of the natural law as the rational creature's participation in the eternal law? This, freed from the obscurantism of historicism, relativism, and nihilism, is our true inheritance. Yes. Uh, Professor uh, I think one also, in making this connection mm -hmm. between, uh, between Aquinas and Jefferson, uh, 
one should also be at least note that there are some important differences, uh, and that those differences are significantly related to things that happened in between the Reformation, the God, in the Christian tradition before, highlighted by the Reformation, and in particular law, uh, in terms of majority rule and individual consent. That is, there's, there's no real trace of, in Aquinas' writings, of uh, political legitimacy coming from individual consent. Right. Mm -hmm. And the term majority rule, a major part, which is not really the same thing as majority, major part is used in medieval uh, writing, but it, it doesn't mean 50% plus one. Mm -hmm. In other words, there are significant changes. Um, and, but but there's also, there are also significant con uh, continuities, and I'm happy to see that you, in effect, disagree with most of your Straussian colleagues uh, on the question of, of Locke and uh, of, of whether well, the ancients and moderns question is really a question of, of Locke. Is, is a Locke a, a product? Does, is he writing in the context? terms of continuity with the Western political tradition, yeah. or does he mark a break? And, and what the Straussian, original Straussian view seemed, at least it appeared to me at the time it emerged, was that this was a very important break. And I guess my question to you is, uh, what do you think of the place of Locke, yeah. and should, isn't he important in this uh, sequence from Aquinas yeah. to Well, uh, this is, a, as you know, a long-standing disagreement between me and uh, what you might call orthodox Faustianism. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm the gadfly. Uh, now, uh, to show how radical my break is, I, I frequently say that if Aristotle had been alive in 1670, he would have written the second treatise. It might have been a few little things that would have been a little different, but not much. Uh, the basic reason which I've given in this closely reason, I know it's hard to follow it all at once, but I have to read it because I, I wanted to be sure that I said the things that I wanted to say. Uh, I've said that the, the authority for law in the ancient city and the Old Testament and the Mosaic policy is no different from Sparta or Crete or Carthage or any of the others. Uh, the uh, Authority for law came from the gods. And that's, in a way, presupposed by Aristotle's politics. That's why there's no real discussion of, of, uh, of why we should obey the law, which is the question which is at the forefront of the Declaration of Independence and, and of Locke. Uh, but uh, in an analysis I gave in the, my recent book on the coming of the Civil War, I had a discussion of the meaning of the divine right of kings uh, which for, for Lincoln was the same as slavery. We take our bearings by human inequality, not by human equality. And there's a wonderful discussion in, in uh, Henry V, the, uh, where, where the king, in disguise, visits the camp the night before Agincourt, and he has this discussion with Bates and Williams, these two soldiers, and they raise the question, as, uh, what is their obligation as Christians if, isn't it their obligation to see that the cause of the king is just? And the conclusion that they, that they arrive at is that, no, that's the king's responsibility. Our duty is to the king. The obligation is from the ground up 
or, I mean, is authority is from the top down. And nowhere in Shakespeare do you find that, uh, although she constantly shows you why the divine right of kings leads to bad government, but there's never any question of the divine right of kings itself. Uh, so that, that really was transformed by the experience of the American Revolution, which, which keeps the authority, the authority of God is there as it is in the divine right of kings, but it's from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Uh, and I think that, that was necessary because of the uh, of the the end of the of the uh, ancient world and the end of the uh, concept of the gods, which uh, I mean the Hebrew God in the Old Testament is different from the others because he's the creator, but at the same time there, there there's constant battling between the God of Israel and the other they're they're paying attention to the other gods as in the worship of the golden calf. And uh, so uh, the authority of God is restored along with the authority, with the creation, you might say, of the authority of the people. And that, that change had to be made if reflection and choice were to replace accident and force. It's not in Aquinas, though, is it? The, no, no, but, but it's not in Aristotle either, except that, that the... Uh, what I'm saying is that that uh, Aristotle himself says that a natural right will change. It's, it's a kind of change which is dictated by reason. And the law of reason and the law of nature, as Locke and Aristotle both tell us, is the same. Uh, that was a, a, it was a rational substitution required by the exigencies of human well-being uh, because the, the, uh, the wars of between popes and the emperors, and then later the wars of the Reformation, uh, all were predicated upon the, the old idea that authority came from the top down. And the American Revolution really resolved that problem in the principles of Locke. As, now, as far as Locke, as, as who is the, what is the real Locke, my position throughout has been uh, the Locke that I uh, uh, take into account is the Locke of the Founding Fathers. Uh, and if, uh, if Leo Strauss said something different in his chapter on Locke, he was not interpreting the founding fathers, he was interpreting Locke. Uh, there's still a question as to what the real interpretation of Locke is, but in any case, I believe that everything I have said is perfectly consistent with Jefferson and Madison and, and Washington. Yes, sir. Oh, oh. Um, I have a kind of a different question, a grammatical question, if you will. Um, it has to do with the phrases you said that were pregnant with meaning. Yes. All men creating, create people. Yes. Which you say it means all, all people. All um, human beings. All human beings, which at the time didn't, but it's a term capacious enough to have included now men and women, white and black, young and old. It's a term that, as we see, even though in its historical historical specificity did in fact for practical purposes mean men now it means mm. more and I'm wondering about this in terms of the movement of amending constitutions to be gender neutral or uh, to, to signify or to specify men and women or movements abroad to have women's constitutions um, say in Afghanistan and other places what do you think is lost in that movement from moving from a term that was at once so capacious, uh, or even when it wasn't specifically. And I have a well, well, I think that, that we're dealing here with a particular 
characteristic of the English language. That in, in both Greek and Latin, we have separate words for man, meaning the male man, not M-A-L-E, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the male human being, the word is vir, see, for which we have virile, see. Uh, but the word for, for the generic term is homo, as in homo sapiens. And in Greek, we have the anir, meaning the male human being, and uh, anthropos, or the generic. But in, in, in English, we only have the one word. Uh, but but the, So the one word has to do for the two words that, which exist in both Greek and Latin. But there never, I think, was any question as to uh, whether or not this referred to human beings as such as opposed to gender-identified human beings. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting, by the way, that the first public speech Lincoln ever gave, he referred to the women's vote. He said he favored all white male human, and, uh, and, not, and for the women should not be forgotten. Uh, so certainly the American Revolution uh, sparked from the beginning uh, a wider application of the meaning which is already there, see. Well, my question is, what do you think is lost by specifying gender or rewriting constitutions now, such as, I think, it's just... Well, I think it's simply easier to make people understand the meaning of the words they're using already. I don't think we need to uh, change the Constitution to... But certainly the 19th Amendment, it took a long time to get there. But when you think of... Of the uh, the uh, slavery was a terrible uh, thing to have been part of the founding, but uh, slavery is the oldest human institution next to the family, at least five thousand years old. Four score and seven years is a very short time between the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address. This gentleman up there, Doctor Gregor. Um, I think this is the flip side of Professor Sigmund's question. Um, and I'm thinking about it in the context of your association of postmodernism with nihilism, because mm -hmm. there's a number of religious authors today who consider themselves postmodern who aren't nihilists, but think of modernism as a secular heresy, precisely because it tries to separate philosophy and theology. Um, and to get it, I think my question might be either your or maybe help us understand Strauss's attitude towards Aquinas. Mm -hmm. Because there's times when I think in Strauss that the problem of the synthesis the synthesis of philosophy and theology is bad for both. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, I mean, it picks up on whether Aquinas can be grafted into the social contract tradition, but really, where in... Strauss <laughs> 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 work here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just... Curious that we have one light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, for Strauss, theology is a divine science that starts with the first principle of revelation. And I just, or for Aquinas, that is. And I don't, I've never understood what Leo Strauss's attitude towards that natural law tradition in Thomism finally was. Uh, well, let me point out that, uh, that according to Strauss, the traditions of reason and revelation of Athens and Jerusalem agree uh, substantially. There are some disagreements, but they're not fundamental, substantial as to what the moral law is. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, I think that Leo Strauss in his work tried to show why both reason and revelation supported th this moral consensus. Uh, 
uh, and he uh, uh, he uh, took aim against those who would discredit either reason or revelation uh, because of the, the authority they gave. Now, Strauss's view of, of modern philosophy as a whole, the, the modern enterprise, going back to certainly Descartes, Leibniz, and Spinoza, uh, or really going back originally to Machiavelli, but more clearly in, in the case of the 17th century, that uh, this was an attempt, modern philosophy wanted to, to, uh, to transcend the opposition between reason and revelation by providing uh, doctrines which would be uh, apodictic, that is to say, perfectly demonstrable. So, so if, if the truth were demonstrable, then there would be no need for either Socratic skepticism or biblical revelation to decide whether or not this is true or not. Uh, this this uh, enterprise uh, has proved a failure. In, in Strauss's essay on the interpretation of Genesis, he mentions, for example, that Spinoza tried to make uh, ethics geometrically demonstrated to get rid of, rid of the uncertainty that, Mars, that Aristotle says the part, uh, is attached to almost any statement about moral and ethical things. But what was the result? But those was ethics that's a thousand times more difficult to understand than, than Aristotle's, you see. So the modern experiment was a failure in the idea of trans, but it never abandoned this, uh, this, um, uh, this goal. Uh, and the pursuit of the goal has, going from the alleged dem demonstrated truths of, say, uh, Descartes, uh, has been to, to really to abandon uh, reason and revelation both, and that's that's what nihilism nihilism is the is the almost inevitable uh, concomitant of uh, the attempt to to uh, to uh, uh, get rid of the of the inherent difficulties in the relationship between reason and revelation. Uh, Strauss's first book on philosophy and law, it's, it's, it's a, it reads very differently than any of his later works. He really is angry at those people, who, the detractors of the Bible, not of philosophy, uh, who, uh, who think uh, with, uh, uh, with the, the philosophes that you can, that you can uh, point out all the contradictions and then and make people laugh at the Bible. Uh, he, interestingly, uh, Strauss echoes the passage in Plato's Gorgias when, uh, uh, when uh, Socrates is maintaining the thesis that the, uh, that the man, that the just man, it is better to be a just man who has no external advantages from his justice than to be a, a tyrant. And uh, then uh, Polis goes on and the, the just man is uh, he has his family uh, uh, killed before his eyes his eyes are put out he's, at the end he's end up being crucified and the whereas the tyrant has all the advantages that come from, from possession of absolute power and uh, uh, Paul says would you would you maintain such a thesis Socrates and, and Socrates says are you trying to argue with me or make my flesh creep and uh, and then Paulus says, well, everybody would laugh at you. 
And Socrates says, what well, is this a form of refutation? See? Uh, and Strauss applies that to the critics of the Bible in his first book, which was, I think, 1925. Uh, so, the, uh, I mean, secular humanism is simply an attempt to, to uh, uh, insist upon, uh, upon a form of reason which is unable to justify itself and which at the same time wants to, detri- to, to uh, diminish uh, all, uh, all appeals either to philosophic reason or to revelation. Eric, did you want to follow up? It's okay. Uh, for talking to you. Uh, you distinguished a, uh, a top-down and a bottom-up uh, view of authority, and you want to stress that the bottom-up theory isn't necessarily uh, without a God orientation of some kind. Uh, or, uh, not, I think that's correct. Uh, my question is, though, uh, isn't this transition to a great extent uh, the result of certain developments within Protestant Christianity, particularly the congregational style of Protestant uh, Christianity? It is, isn't Protestant Christianity, uh, to a great extent, responsible for uh, the development of democratic theory in the United States? Uh, well, I think that as a matter of historical cause and effect, that uh, that, that Protestant form of Protestantism went into the to the those uh, New England communities that Tocqueville celebrates, uh, and uh, so. But I think that that uh, has become essentially non-sectarian in its in its uh, uh, those people who support it. Uh, and I might say that that the uh, the the theory of the of Jefferson's uh, statute of, of Religious liberty for the for Virginia, which is uh, the second of the three things that he had inscribed on his tombstone, and everybody notices the first is a Declaration of Independence, but the central one is the is the Statute of Religious Liberty, which in some respects has more of the theory of the Declaration than, than the Declaration itself, as it begins as "Whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free," uh, and the uh, uh, I believe that, that every element of the argument of that uh, has been patronized by John Paul within his papacy. Uh, so that, that <laughs> which, which in a way illustrates my point that it was always uh, in Thomas's theory, except that it, it couldn't be developed because, I mean, Thomas was not anxious to be a candidate for, for being burned at the stake. And, uh, and he was his... Uh, many of his theses were condemned by, I think it was John of Paris and his list of, uh, of condemned propositions. A lot of Thomas is condemned. Uh, I would say that my own view of Thomas, uh, and I think this is also true of Strauss, that, that the uh, view of Thomas that, that is a natural right in history was one which, which he changed in his later years. Uh, when I wrote Thomas, Thomism and Aristotelianism, by the way, that was 1950. Published in 1952, not in 19. <laughs> we must have been looking at the sixth edition. <laughs> right. Well, no, but uh, that I thought uh, in 19, well, in 1945 when I first started writing it, that that Thomas was trying to make uh, Aristotle safe for Christianity. But uh, I think now, and I think Strauss thought later that he was trying to make Christianity safe for Aristotle. 
<laughs> but Angelo, I just noticed you're there. Surely you did not mean to suggest that uh, either Thomas Aquinas or John of Paris or, uh, or Marcellus of Padua or indeed any medieval figure ever argued that it was that if the kings had a right to do things which were naturally unjust. Mm-hmm. They, they had no such right. Of course not. Yeah, yes, well, it, no, no. No, no, it, it, it appeared that, that you gave the impression Except that, that in, in the, if you remember in my analysis of, of the Shakespeare's history plays, uh, which I point out are all about civil war, which and, and Lincoln was a great student of Shakespeare. Uh, but the the notion that, that, that authority comes from the authority, I, the authority to decide what is right comes from the king down, comes much much later in history than the Middle Ages. The you mean the, the the idea of the divine right of kings, yeah. which is in the 17th century yeah, well, or 16th not, century? That is not a medieval idea, right? But but those but it was still in in uh, in, in, in Henry V. Uh, the uh, even though his father usurped the throne from Richard, and even though Richard was. Uh, Evidently, an incompetent and unjust ruler. The the, uh, uh, the Richard possessed the authority of divine right because he inherited it, and he was the the in this sense the most legitimate ruler. But somehow, through the through the uh, mandate of heaven, <laughs> it changed. But but even on the on the eve of Agincourt, uh, King Henry prayed to God not to remember. His father's sin. It's, it's an interesting conception of, of God to, to ask God to forget something. That's Shakespeare writing considerably after Thomas. Uh, yes, yes. But, but it's also, I point out that the, that the, uh, uh, the, the uh, tyrannicide uh, is uh, in, in King John Tyrannicide is an instrument of tyranny. Uh, uh, and uh, later, of course, uh, it becomes the instrument of the people's liberation from, from, from monarchy at a time when monarchy is about to be replaced by some form of democracy. Right, well, uh, Professor Jaff, um, uh, thank you for a splendid presentation. Uh, it's hard to know which read to pick up on doing reason and revelation and, and Socratic rationalism and just, just pick up one. so forth. Uh, they're all interesting. I thought I would perhaps come back to Professor Sigmund's interest in uh, uh, the question of Locke and the American founding, uh, maybe playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, but I was recently reading a, began reading a book by um, a contemporary Catholic natural law philosopher, Russell Pittenger, mm-hmm. you might know. Uh, yeah, we've got that. But the beginning of the book, if I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting misrepres- him, others know his work better, but uh, he seems to labor uh, mightily to get the social contract theory out of Madison and the founding mm-hmm. uh, through looking at the memorial and remon- remonstrance and religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, you know, Locke 
You, you pointed out that Madison's those compact is the foundation. He repeats that right away. <laughs> right. So we've got this contrary evidence that seems pretty, pretty compelling. But why the effort to get a, a social contract theory out of uh, founding American principles? And it, it seems to me that probably the reason is Hobbes. Um, that, that Hobbes being, I think, the first, at least the most prominent of the first moderns to lay out a theory of social compact mm -hmm. in which he imagines the individual in a state of nature, but uh, in, in the process of his analysis, clearly, uh, you know, uh, will uh, takes the place of reason, um, uh, 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 self-preservation trumps considerations of virtue, and so forth. So someone who's concerned with the moral side of political life right, uh, might wonder about whether social contract theory is the best foundation for a properly decent uh, constitutional polity. And I'm wondering if you think Locke corrected Hobbes or whether the more I guess for you the question is did the founders correct Hobbes and your answer is yes. Well, let's, let me say that that the, uh, the social contract is absolutely indispensable for the establishment of the regime that founders wanted. Uh, the outstanding example of somebody who who, uh, who eliminated the social contract from political thought and denied that there was any voluntary basis for man's association in government was John C. Calhoun. Calhoun said, to, to get rid of the social contract, he said, that man's membership in civil society is as involuntary as breathing. And if I may say so, I think I've given a definitive analysis of that of the uh, disquisition in my latest book. Uh, so uh, now it's important to understand that the, that, the, that the idea of the state of nature, the state of nature can be understood in two ways, chronologically and ontologically. Ontologically, it is, it is part of civil society at every stage because it is the law, the law of reason, which is the law of nature, remains as a standard by which Actual civil societies are to be, and actions within are to, are to be judged. Uh, there's a parallel to this in Aristotle himself. In the in the Nicomachean Ethics, Ethics, Aristotle says that the that the family is prior to the polis. In the polis, he said. In the politics, he says the polis is prior to the family. Now, one is meant chronologically, and the other meant ontologically. There's no contradiction between them. Uh, so, uh, but at some point, certainly in, in, in the way in which civil societies were formed on the American frontier, let us say, uh, there, there was always a coming together and uh, the forming of communities uh, voluntarily. But if the, if the foundation of the community is not voluntary, then, then freedom of the will within civil society uh, is questionable. The voluntariness of a free society is a reflection of the voluntary consent achieved through the social contract as the foundation, whether conceived of chronologically or ontologically. But the ontological character is, which is present in the chronological as well, 
is the more fundamental because we can only understand what a free society is if we understand that we have contracted each with all and all with each to be governed by certain laws for the common good and that these and that the common good is defined by the rights with which we have been endowed by our creator. Professor Jampin, there are a number of uh, students here from the Constitutional Interpretation class. I wonder if you could take a moment. I'll take all the moments you want. You've been uh, such a sharp critic of the jurisprudence of Scalia, yes. Bork, and Rehnquist. Yes. You said a word by way of criticism of Scalia in your formal remarks, but I wonder if you'd be willing to expand a little bit about what it is you find so objectionable in their approach to the philosophy of law. Well, uh, I quoted Scalia. I'll also I'll quote uh, from uh, Rehnquist. Uh, his uh, essay on the notion of a living constitution, which, as far as I know, is the only place in which he puts together all his thoughts on this subject. And uh, he attacks the, uh, the, uh, the, the living constitution means the liberals who can make up the constitution as they go along. And I agree with everything he says against them, you see. But what is his alternative? He said, if a people adopts a constitution with safeguards for individual liberty, these do indeed take on a certain moral rightness or goodness. They do so neither because of any intrinsic worth or anyone's idea of natural justice, but only because they have been adopted by a people. Now, uh, now consider what this means. <clears throat> First of all, safeguards for individual liberty do not have any intrinsic worth. Well, that means individual liberty does not have any intrinsic worth, which means ultimately that individual life does not have any intrinsic worth. But he said, these, if they, are, if they are adopted by a people, they take on a certain moral rightness or goodness. Well, that means they, they don't have moral rightness, but they take it on. That is to say, this is just an, an overlay of opinion because people say it's so. Now, but what about the Constitution of 1787? <clears throat> if you're looking for original intent, you go back to there. The Constitution of 1787 had, in its overall design and everything, was the greatest safeguard for individual liberty the world has ever seen. But that same Constitution has safeguards for slavery, very powerful safeguards for slavery. The safeguards, to the safeguards for slavery not take on the same moral rightness or goodness as the safeguards for liberty? They obviously must. Now, that was the position of the South instructed by John C. Calhoun in 1860. They said that the morality of the safeguards of slavery was on the same level and had the same degree of obligation as the safeguards for liberty. Now, that... Uh, now, the, the, the most important charge on the part of liberals against original intent jurisprudence is that the original Constitution uh, sanctioned slavery. And, and they, that is a reason why the, the original intent should be disregarded, you see. But uh, so the strongest argument against uh, uh, the uh, jurisprudence of original intent is the one that Rehnquist creates it, or at least endorses it by, by his own analysis. Professor Mead? Uh, I was going to take up on a question raised earlier. Uh, you said that during the age of monarchy, then, roughly, there was an age, it was a time of force and accident where what the kings did was not justified from above. 
as, as pointed out by Christ in previous question, during that period, actually, was the period when there would have been the greatest belief in natural law and also divine law as justifying the rule of the kings. Now, you may have found that rule ineffective. It may prove less effective than the government consent. I think if that is the case. But then what law changes is not that it brings back a godly basis for rule, but that it changes because the previous rule also brings a godly basis. The real change is simply that you know, the practical improvement in the machinery of government, because there is consent, because government is supposed to observe these rights, it is now more effective in fulfilling the rights than it was previously. So the change with Locke is not that we suddenly have the return of the rule of divine law or natural law, it's rather that we now have consent. So is, 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 is Locke's real innovation that he goes back to a divine basis or is it that he has consent and that well, the rights I, can become an advance for government now? Well, let me go back to a point I made earlier, and that is that the, the majority rule is founded on the fact that that it is rule of a regime of individual rights, individual rights which are understood to be God-given. See, uh, and these rights are shared by majority and minority because they are. So there's there's really there's no difference in principle. And Jefferson, in his inaugural address, uh, uh, speaking in the wake of the the, the politics of the 1790s, which were probably more vicious than any, even in the antebellum period, and and he sort of put a tried to put a period to those to those conflicts by saying that we are all we are all Democrat, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. Not every difference of opinion is a difference of principle, which allowed for the fact that there could be differences of principle, which might not be tolerable. But the difference by people who are uh, who are subscribed to the say the principles of the Declaration of Independence, they should be resolvable through majority rule, without uh, without uh, uh, endangering the social peace. I mentioned in my book that the election of 1800, as far as I know, is, was the first time in human history that a government changed hands on the basis of a free election by a whole people. Uh, the, uh, the changes in the parliamentary majorities in England in the 18th century were not the result of it, any general election, and the level of participation was much, much narrower than it was in the colonies or in the early history of our republic. Uh, now, the, that, that uh, kings could claim to be acting in accordance with God's will, though, uh, that, that, <clears throat> that did not prevent the stasis in Shakespeare's history plays, we see nothing but stasis arising from the from the contrary and contradictory claims to legitimacy. Everybody admits the divine right, but then each claims the, the, the divine right for himself. Uh, there is no real rational resolution of the problem of, of rule as long as divine right of kings is claimed to be the necessary condition for legitimacy. But that's not the actual history. The actual history is the English kings developed consent through Parliament and through yeah. ruling in the name of society. They did not actually claim divine right of kings in the way you're presenting it. No, no they... Precisely out of that experience that you could have a figure like Locke. Mm -hmm. and, and the very idea of the rule of law is an English invention. It goes back to the 12th century now. Well, the rule of law is defined, I think, by Aristotle in the, the, the third book of the politics. Of the we descend from, 
is an English creation, and it does not involve the rule. It does not yeah. involve the error in claims like King's rule on the road of Oregon No, but, but if you look at, at English constitutional history, going back to Magna Carta, the, the rights claimed there are, are customary rights and not natural rights, although they could be understood as natural rights uh, in, in time. The point is that they that, that people are they established precedents and then they and then they followed them and this built up a tradition of the idea of the rule of law, but it didn't solve the ultimate question of where does the obligation for law itself come from, and that I think was uh, I mean it was implicit in the 1689 revolution, but the uh, uh, which was I think a revolution conducted by disciples of John Locke, who, however, never uh, admitted that they were. <laughs> and, uh, and in the same way, but if you look at the difference between the, say, between the, the, the Toleration Act of 1689 and Jefferson's Statute of, of Virginia, the, uh, uh, the Toleration Act did not, did not have within itself any recognition of any right to religious freedom. Uh, what it did was provide tests for all the different churches or sects. Uh, it was the first great case of, a, of affirmative action. Everybody was given a test that he could pass. Uh, but uh, Macaulay's judgment on the Toleration Act is that in the end that uh, nothing can be said in its defense except that it removed a vast mass of evil without disturbing a vast mass of prejudice. Now, in 1786, when Jefferson drafted the Jefferson and Madison together worked on the Virginia statute. <clears throat> the, uh, there was no, uh, there was plenty, of course, prejudices involved, but there was not that obstacle to the use of reason. See, uh, the, the, the reason given for religious liberty in the Virginia statute was the same reason for religious liberty in 1689, except that it couldn't be made public at that time. But uh, in time, of course, uh, English public, public opinion also uh, came to realize or understand that uh, religious liberty itself, the, the, the free exercise of religion, was one of the natural rights of mankind. Paul, oh, you, you sh were shaking your head in both well, directions at different points. Specific historical yeah. issues, no, no, no. I, I won't spend the time on that question of a relation of loss to 1689. But and I don't want to go into that. What, what I want to do is just ask a well, general. I had something new. Maybe I should have somebody else in there. Uh, well, it is something new. I mean, oh. I, I have another question. I have to wait. Well, it's not a question. One, one sentence. Just uh, what have you added to what was said by Edward Corwin in the 1920s about that mm. there is a higher law background to the country? Yeah. Well, I, I think I have given a somewhat more sophisticated version of this thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, final uh, question. Oh. Professor Gath, it's wonderful oh, to have you back east and um, away from the left coast. Uh, <laughs> when, in one of your chapters in Prices of the House Divided, I think it's the chapter... Is this Colleen? Yes. I thought I said it. <laughs> my, um, my eyesight isn't as good as it used, but it's still good. All right, go ahead. <laughs> one of my great graduate students, formerly. <laughs> yes, um, go ahead. 
in the chapter in Crisis of the House Divided, when you talk about how Lincoln goes beyond the founding, mm-hmm. um, really sort of cleans up the problems of the founding, bring, you know, by declaring things like um, there is no right to do wrong, bringing in, sort of combining the founding and law on the one hand with a, um, a firmer, uh, fuller moral basis, mm-hmm. uh, sort of an Aristotelian idea of natural right. And now you've refined your thoughts, changed your mind, and so on, and see law. Forty years. And fair enough. Um, and see Locke and the found and the yeah. founders yeah. differently. Um, Jefferson and Madison, and perhaps others. I don't know. Um, what made you change your mind? Was it um, is it a prudential uh, judgment? Is it uh, certain information uh, that you? Um, discovered since then, and second part of the question is: Have you also changed your mind about Madison, and therefore um, Phoenix, uh, uh, Phoenix from the Ashes, will never be published? Wait, wait. What's the last? Have so, you changed your mind about Madison and, and what your article, your unpublished article, um, Phoenix from the Ashes? Oh, you know, I, I can't even. I remember that was one of the things that I that I determined right. From the outset, I would never publish. Uh, but now I've forgotten what was in it. <laughs> However, uh, in, in the paper I just read, nothing persuaded me more than those quotations from George Washington. Uh, because uh, Washington may, may not have been the most uh, say imaginative scholar or thinker on these subjects, but he was the most authoritative. If Washington says that the that, that the uh, in his inaugural address as president, the speech, by the way, which I think is in many ways more valuable than the farewell address, uh, but both are valuable, of course. But there he speaks about the indissoluble union of virtue and happiness. Uh, that means that the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of virtue are the same. That's 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 the complete opposite of all that our some of my friends have been saying about the pursuit of happiness, which means Doing, I said, doing your own thing, no matter what that thing is. No. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of other quotations from uh, Washington, which I think fit the same pattern. But then the the, uh, the quotations from Jefferson that I read today from the, the Adams letter about the natural aristocracy, uh, that's uh, uh, the, the, the aristocracy. The Aristot- there you get a kind of pure Aristotelianism. Uh, certainly the doctrine that all men are created equal is not something you would automatically associate with Aristotle. But I think that when you realize the, uh, the necessity uh, which was in political thought itself for a different understanding of the source of political obligation after the end of the ancient world ended the role of God as lawgiver. That role is restored, but you know, but but that restoration requires the social contract, which in turn requires that we see human equality as the fundamental principle, and not the difference between men as the basis for political authority. Although the difference between men can be as usefully referred to once a, a government has been established on the basis of consent. And, and the rule of law, which Strauss himself says is, old, is preferable 
the, the wise prefer the rule of law to the rule of the wise. See, uh, and uh, the rule of law being one in which those who make the, those who are under the law make the law that they are under, and those who make the law are under the law that they make. That that essential uh, relationship between man and law, uh, which is I think tied very tightly to the to the, or the whole thing that we think of it as a social contract. Well, there uh, were a number of hands still left, Dr. Sabru and uh, uh, others, but we now have to go into the, uh, uh, to our reception. But I think I can say with some confidence that uh, if we give Professor Jaff a soda, he'll probably be ready to uh, entertain all the questions you have and approach him well, uh, individually. I hope so, anyway. I don't lose my voice. <laughs> well, we'll get you a soda. Thank you very much.